0: Good evening. Here we are, we are here to discuss an interesting book by Sri Raji Malhotraji, AI and the Future of Power: The Five Battlegrounds. He is from Infinity Foundation and he has uh, written interesting books like Being Different, which had an interest, which had a profound impact on me. I'd like to welcome the panelists. Uh, first, I will mention Professor M. Vidyasagar, who is a Fellow of the Royal Society (FRS). He is a distinguished professor at uh, IIT Hyderabad in electrical engineering. In the past, he was also for a decade at Concordia, at Waterloo for another decade. And he was also the, uh, the first and the uh, critical director for uh, Center for AI and Robotics in Bangalore. He also for a, for a decade, he was at TCS and uh, most recently was at UT Dallas. Now he's in IIT Hyderabad. Second, I'd like to invite Professor P.R. Kumar who is a University Distinguished Chair and Regents Professor at University of Texas College Station. He was previously at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. He's also a member of the National Academy of Engineering, a very distinguished body in the US of our scientists and technologists. Next, I would like to invite Dr. Sailesh Kumar, who's the Chief Data Scientist at jio Geo. And he is also part of the Center for Center of Excellence in AI and ML. Interestingly, he's also a visiting professor of machine learning at India, uh, Indian School of Business. One of the top, top business schools, uh, not only in India, but also across the world. Uh, what's interesting also about Dr. Shailesh Kumar of what he has worked in many AI related areas before he stints at Yahoo, Microsoft, Google, I am uh, K. Gopinath and I'm, I'm a professor at Indian of Science Bangalore. So basically the format is as follows. We'll take some important issues highlighted in the book and ask some related questions. Before we proceed to the discussion, I would like to request uh, uh, Rajiv Ji to give a brief synopsis of the book.
1: Thank you, uh, Gopinath, for uh, organizing this uh, uh, discussion among uh, esteemed panelists. And I want to thank each of you, uh, Vidya Sagar Ji, Ji, uh, Professor Kumar Ji, all of you. Uh, taking uh, time from your busy schedules uh, to discuss what I think is a very important topic. Uh, To give you uh, my thesis in a nutshell, so that you can then quiz me, cross-examine me, grill me as much as you want, the more the better. Uh, Basically, what I want to say is artificial intelligence has a lot of positive things to do, positive things to offer to this world, no doubt. And a lot is being written on it. But there are also unequal impact of AI. Uh, unequal in the sense that uh, some people will get amazing jo- new jobs, some people will lose jobs, they will not be trainable because maybe they'll be in the middle of their career or they're just not educated enough. Uh, some regions of a country, maybe Bangalore will benefit, and some regions like Bihar and Odisha, the kind of uh, industry, the kind of uh, occupations they have, will lose. Uh, some, So, it'll be at the per- individual level, there'll be winners and losers, it'll be at the regional level. It can, may also trigger new colonization new colonization in the sense that china may colonize pakistan it already probably has and uh, uh, you know many african countries like zimbabwe where china has put a whole lot of monitors whole lot of uh, you know sensors uh, these uh, facial recognition cameras and all that uh, doing surveillance and in the name of surveillance and security they're actually capturing big data and able to control those governments uh, us may have its colonies or pseudo colonies so similarly so there may be a new era Of uh, colonization or or semi colonization, certainly because the impact is unequal uh, at these different levels, the equilibriums that exist at various levels will fall apart. Because when you have an equilibrium among many forces held in balance, uh, if the balance is upset because some forces get stronger than others, Because of new technology and their different ways, their different ability to harness the technology. Some have more access to it, some can afford it, some know more about it than others. So, this this kind of set of equilibriums at various levels fall apart. My thesis says that the unequal uh, use of AI, the unequal impact of AI, Uh, at the personal level, at the geographical regional level, at the national level, at the industry level, will create new haves and have-nots and will create disequilibrium. These existing equilibriums will fall apart. Of course, this has happened many times before. And eventually, maybe uh, 25 or 50 years afterwards, there'll be a new equilibrium, a new kind of uh, new rules of the game. Uh, But my my work is on that interim period. When the current equilibrium falls apart, which it already is, and before a new equilibrium is established, we will have a period of social unrest. We, it could be violent. It, there could be human rights violations. There could be trauma. Uh, there could be new political upheavals. So, there can be all sorts of things happening because of this disequilibrium. Equi- so, this is part one of my thesis. Part two is that the analog with the industrial evolution is not valid. Because uh, while people say that, okay, in the case of industrial evolution, similar to AI, a new technology of electrifying factories happened and the world benefited. More jobs were created than destroyed. My rebuttal to that is that while more jobs were created in Britain, jobs in India were lost. So, India lost the old uh, old technology economy and Britain gained the uh, benefit of the industrial revolution. And this led to the rise of the East India Company and this led to uh, 200 years of colonialism. So actually, what happened in the industrial revolution supports my thesis, that there'll be unequal impact, as happened in the case of in in that era. Also, another difference is another, uh, this one is a similarity uh, between the industrial revolution and uh, what what is happening in the AI revolution. But there are some dissimilarities also. Uh, In the industrial revolution, the adoption of new technology was very slow. So that if I was a 35-year-old farmer, uh, it's not going to disrupt my job. The new technology uh, meant it was so slow that I could continue being a farmer till I retired. And my son would not be a farmer. He would go to the city, get a factory job. So the transfer from uh, farming to uh, factories happened over 25, 30, 50 years slowly. And so uh, one generation could continue living the old way and the next generation could start in the new way. And uh, This did not happen right in the middle of some people's lives. AI is very abrupt uh, because it's very quick. The adoption rates are fast. If you look at new technologies today versus say the adoption rate of uh, electricity in the past or automobiles or the penetration of airplanes, you know, those technologies took a very long time to get adopted. Capital was not as much available as it is today. Uh, There weren't that many, uh, that much communication around the world for people to learn quickly from each other. The, The scalability was very slow. So the scalability, uh, the speed of uh, ai adoption being what it is we don't have the same case as the previous industrial revolution to gradually adjust to the new reality this is another reason why the uh, the uh, br- the uh, social impact right now will be far greater so this is my second thesis that is different from the industrial revolution my the third part of uh, my point is that the reports on india ai in india i've read Pretty much every everything I could get my hands on, whether it's Nithya Yog or Fiki or uh, Price Waterhouse or McKinsey or whatever, uh, the reports are not balanced. They represent the corporate sector. They represent the top-down, uh, you know, corporate sector. But corporate sector in India employs less than ten percent of the workers. The other ninety percent are small, medium industries or self-employed. So this corporate, these people who work for the corporate sector, Price Waterhouse, Cooper. Ernst & Young, all of these guys. I mean, obviously, they are presenting a corporate view. So they went and interviewed HR departments. They went and interviewed customer departments, PR people in corporate India. And they came up with various points of view. I kind of contest some of those claims because to have a better report, more authentic report, they should go down to the panchayat level. They should go down to the district level. Uh, the, the, the impact on, at the state level has to be studied because every state should look at the impact of AI for itself uh, from the ground up. Uh, and also the tendency to use uh, Western data. Western conclusions uh, and apply them blindly to India is is going on. I see a lot of of corporate presentations, a lot of uh, government of India presentations, basically mimicking uh, what the Westerners are saying about impact of AI. But the impact of AI will be very country specific and in fact, state specific and industry specific. I don't see that. I don't see reports which have actually looked at AI bottom up. So those are some of my important views uh, in this book. I will, I will now stop and uh, let the moderator take it forward.
0: So let me start with the first question, which uh, Rajivji already has talked about. What will happen when AI makes large numbers of workers absolute? The generic view is that uh, most reports claim that AI will create more jobs than it will kill. But uh, Rajivji's position is exactly the opposite. And he has explained why. Uh, let me ask uh, India specific question. Uh, AI is generally said to have a big impact on workers with middle-level expertise. For example, middle-level managers are typically expected to be automated out. So, if so, will Indian technical workers who are not occupying the very high or the low end be a major casualty in global terms? Can I request uh, Rajiv to uh, say a few words about this?
1: So, you know, I'm glad you asked this question because when you ask people in India, what's the AI opportunity for the Indian workers? Uh, There are two issues I have. One is that uh, uh, the, the, the impact of AI is being seen only for those who are going to be in the AI business. Uh, people who are trained in AI, a lot of young people taking courses in AI, it's very popular in colleges and going down to schools also. But you know, you're know, you not going to be able to get 100% or even 50% or even 80% of the population, uh, uh, tw- 25% of the population trained as AI producers. It'll be a small percentage of the population who are uh, you know, kind of in the AI profession. So the issue of AI impact should also be discussed with non-AI people you know the the local street vendor who loses loses out to you know amazon or to some big store and they have all this uh, machine learning and data knowledge to target uh, deliveries and to target uh, better you know supply chains and so on so what happens to the uh, when you make things efficient any anything you make efficient and you remove inefficiencies, you're also removing jobs of people. Because while it was inefficient in a macro sense, in a micro sense, individuals' jobs depended on it. So that, I, that kind of uh, impact uh, uh, for people who are not well-educated, the bottom 500 million people, I think that's a, that's a concern has not been addressed. Even among those who are going to be trained, I think more relevant to, more to the point of what uh, Gopinath is asking, even those who are going to be ai trained the, the goal of the indian thinkers is to supply labor to western, uh, western clients uh, which means body shopping which means wage arbitrage we will supply labor and they will build intellectual property for american companies and british companies and you know european companies in general china is being sort of blocked out it used to be uh, doing this also in a big way in india but supplying indian brains so that uh, West, uh, foreign companies can get the intellectual property is hardly a long-term viable strategy. Because it means that we are just a bunch of labor producers. We are just labor. And and somebody else owns the brains, owns the property that we produce. So, I find that even among the middle level people, the plan of uh, supplying, using them as labor is, I, I find it kind of problematic.
2: Yes, yes. So, it's an honor to be here, sir. And uh, this is a great and very important discussion. Um, so I will play both sides of it and and you know talk about how we cannot uh, you know brush a technology only in one way and there are benefits and there are dangers of every technology right whether we have cars if a drunk driver is driving around a car and killing people that's not the car's fault if the chinese and russians are making missiles which are ai enabled it's not ai's fault if uh, we are misusing ai to change election results it's not ai's fault is the people behind it, right? So, I think in terms of the job and uh, other areas, uh, you you made a very interesting point that efficiency creation leads to loss of jobs. So, let me uh, give one a couple of examples which are kind of uh, you know contrary to that, and just to show how AI also benefits while it it does hamper a lot of jobs. So, I'll, I'll give examples on both sides. So, if you look at Ola and Uber, for example, today, right? And, you know, when we were at Ola, we used to talk to the drivers all the time and say, how are you doing before and after Ola came? And Ola, you can think of it as a technology slash AI company, which brought efficiency into the cab fleet management system, right? What does that mean? It means that now more people are able to get the cabs, more drivers are able to get onto one of these uh, platforms, right? So, so there is benefit in a two-sided marketplace and that efficiency had led to increase in their incomes. It has led to more capacity in the, in the taxi system in, in, in the country and it has led to a uh, you know, uh, uh, better way of uh, commuting and all that uh, and people don't have to buy cars and things like that. right? Another example I'll give is uh, you know the new commerce idea that retail uh, Reliance Retail is now trying to promote is that we are not going to sideline the Kirana uh, stores, uh, mom and pop shows stores. How can we actually bring them onto the AI bandwagon and digitize them so that they can do their inventory management better, their pricing better, their supply chain better with the help of technology, right? So if we think of technology as an enabler in some sense, uh, and how do we bring technology to these people to make them more efficient and productive and And the whole ecosystem more efficient, right? Look at agriculture, for example. Today, we don't know, you know, what is grown where and when is it going to be uh, available and what is the demand supply of food in the country. But if we have satellites that can tell us what is growing where, when is it going to be available, we can actually increase the efficiency of our agriculture system, right? And we can match supply to demand. We can understand from retailers what is the demand. We can understand from satellite data what is the supply. And we can do that job variable, right? So there are a lot of possible benefits that AI can bring, which will actually increase the productivity and efficiency of, of people and systems. Uh, this is one part of, of, you know, the positive aspect of AI, right? So, and at the end, I will conclude that it's not AI per se, but the way we use AI that is going to decide what will happen to our society. Now, the negative examples, right? So today, you know, one of the One of the things, sir, you brought up is, uh, you know, these companies are using Indian workers the same way they were using Indian workers in the past for IT jobs, low-level IT jobs, right? So one of the examples I'll give is in the AI economy, one of the very important areas is labeling the data. And today, if I look at all these, uh, you know, Fagma companies, uh, they are actually using a lot of Indian labor, if you will to label the data right so you, they show you an image and they say label this is it a stop sign or a car or whatever now that is a very important input that goes into their systems to train the deep learning models that they use to build autonomous vehicles for the whole world right now obviously this this labor force is not being recognized right they are uh, you know we have we have used the indian labor market in this way in the ai economy now so this is the negative aspect of it and if we don't upskill ourselves we are going to be continuously seen as you know, the BPO country or the or the labeling country of the world and not as a technology producer country. Uh, and, and that is one of the areas that is uh, of grave concern. And that's why, you know, many, uh, including the current Indian government and many people are thinking about bringing up a new kind of education system that will help revamp the way we teach our, our next generation so that they are at least prepared for this onslaught of the West in the technological excellence. If you look
3: at the last 30 years or so of uh, office automation, it has given rise to what I like to call the point and click culture. Now what has happened is that uh, 30 years ago, people may fill out forms by hand or make phone calls. Today, almost everybody goes to the office, sits in front of a, a computer screen for the next eight hours, and then they go home. And within those eight hours, just to repeat my phrase, I call it point and click. The point, They pull the cursor someplace, click, and do something. I don't see that changing. What AI will change is what happens behind the screen once you click. So I think people can adapt relatively easily to the advent of AI. The other very important point for me in terms of AI is Unlike many previous technologies, AI is almost completely open source. There are not that many proprietary technologies that somebody can wrap up, lock away and keep anybody else from exploiting. So that means that even a high school student can sit and write a nice AI application for finding out the vegetable prices in the next Monday, as Shailesh was mentioning. The tools that are needed Will be readily accessible. There is no issue about that. And the last point of course is the connectivity issue. And here I must say that uh, Reliance has almost single-handedly transformed the the landscape whereby even uh, middle school and high school children are able to get reasonably good bandwidth to get access to information. So therefore, if somebody does have an idea for an AI application, that person, the developer need not worry whether the potential users of that application will have sufficient bandwidth to use it. Now, the one challenge in AI, as I see it now, is that it's a bit of a resource hog, not particularly efficient as things are. And so you see that it's only the very large companies with huge computing power that are creating these applications. And where countries like India can actually take the lead, and some are doing it, they are not the kind of people who McKinsey or Waterhouse goes in and interviews, as Mr. Malhotra rightly pointed out. These are these very bright entrepreneurial youngsters from schools and colleges around India. They're creating these edge computing AI applications, which are small enough to fit into portable devices with the limited memory limited battery life and limited computing power. And I think that what we do in that domain, we can actually be the leaders. I think the lesson for people like us to learn from all this is, don't try a top-down approach. I certainly don't want the government of India to come out with AI policy for the country, because that will be a disaster. Instead, facilitate open source tools, facilitate the creation of low cost, high bandwidth networks, facilitate language uh, interfaces in all the Indian languages and turn the people loose. That's what is going to happen in India. And that's definitely going to be more of a benefit than a hindrance, this is my belief. Uh,
4: Thank you, Gopi, for organizing this panel and thank you, Dr. Malhotra uh, for bringing us all together to consider this uh, very important question. And uh, I uh, do completely resonate uh, with your uh, uh, summary that this is actually a wake up call to action. And I particularly liked your dedication to young scientists and uh, technocrats. Also, I do want to also uh, uh, mention that uh, you are not using the word Dr. Malhotra in the narrow limited technical sense of AI, but you also include actually the entire ecosystem of uh, technologies that AI propels forward. For example, you mentioned quantum computing, semiconductors, uh, nanotechnology, medical technology, aerospace, 5G, et cetera, okay? Uh, you know, for a long time, if you read the popular literature, people say that the agricultural revolution was a great leap forward for humanity, okay? Uh, so, but uh, there is this very uh, uh, interesting book by Sapiens by uh, uh, Yuval Harari, who says that uh, that tale is fantasy. He says, rather than heralding a new era of easy living, uh, agricultural revolution left farmers with lives generally much more difficult and less satisfying than those of the foragers. The average farmer worked much harder than the average forager and got a worse diet in return uh they they broke their backs clearing fields uh, lugged heavy buckets from the well and he goes on to say that we did not domesticate wheat wheat domesticated us apes the question is can we as humanity envision where we're going and can we actually take action that is in our best interest whatever that means and that is not at all clear uh for example if you take this global uh, uh, climate change we all know it is coming right are we Doing all the things uh, that we can, it is not clear whether humanity can act uh, intelligently. There is actually a broader issue also, as uh, brought out in uh, Thomas Piketty's book on capital, uh, which also, you know, says uh, the, uh, which also brings uh, says that inequalities can generally uh, generally do increase with time. Now let me turn uh, specifically to India. India has had a long tradition. Uh, thinking deeply of the ethics of politics, the ethics of warfare, the ethics of administration, everything, to think about the ethical uh, uses, ramifications of all these new technologies is something very much uh, that uh, India is well-suited to do, if we can just tap into resonate with our uh, uh, natural uh, philosophical inclinations. You know, a lot of us, we just uh, follow the bandwagon and uh, uh, do wherever our research or uh, our uh, job takes us. But uh, you know, we need to reflect more about where we are headed. As somebody said, uh, life unexamined is not worth living. What uh, maybe we should uh, challenge ourselves more? For example, you know, in the United States, when we write proposals, our National Science Foundation insists that we write a broader impact statement, a societal impact. And invariably, people talk about the positive impact of what they're writing maybe we should explicitly ask people to also say what are the possible negative impacts and so on just to warn people caution people at least it increases awareness so when we write uh, things when we do research maybe we ought to say something about possible negative uses okay along with the the positive uses uh, maybe we can even bring this down to phd students maybe you can Bring into practice some kind of oath for engineers and programmers and economists, uh, and so on. But more broadly, we do need a a much uh, deeper education. Okay, I think that this problem is not going to be solved just by a few people. There has to be broad awareness in society among school teachers, among. Uh, children in middle school, uh, elementary school, high school, etc. So uh, we need much deeper courses on uh, on these kinds of issues. Uh, I just wish that we uh, in India can uh, uh, somehow uh, bring ourselves together to think rationally about these problems with uh, uh, in the Indian tradition and uh, think about what is it that is good for us, what is it that is bad, and act in a concerted way. Thank you.
0: I think we will go to the second question. Uh, again, I'm taking a phrase from the book Disruptive AI technology will weaken many sovereign states and destabilize fragile political equilibriums. There is a realistic scenario for the recolonization of the world differently, that is, as digital colonies. I'd like to pose the question Is there a technology denial regime possible with AI as it happened with nuclear energy? especially if it is combined with advanced quantum systems and the like, or for example, AI and cyber warfare, or could there be an answer race through things like adversarial learning? Okay. Can I request uh, Professor Vidyasagar uh, Sagar uh, to speak a few words on this?
3: The reason why I emphasize the fact that a lot of AI tools are open source is precisely for this reason. Uh, for example, even semiconductor design, like the chips, could be designed. Uh, could be denied. Pardon me. The semiconductor chips could be denied under various regimes. But the code that is running on them, quite often is it, is not going to be denied. And I think that the interfaces, many of those things are also in the open source. So I don't think it will be quite that easy to create a kind of a barrier to the free flow of AI tools. I think much more insidious is the the point that uh, Sri mentioned in his opening remarks, which is that in the guise of democratizing AI, we could actually wind up with a surveillance state. And uh, oftentimes the pervasiveness of the surveillance tools, can be sold as a boon rather than as a bane, so because some small incremental benefits will accrue from the surveillance mechanism, and people will perhaps be brainwashed into not seeing the much worse uh, deleterious effect.
0: I think Rajivji wanted to pose a question. Can you kindly proceed?
1: Yeah, I have a I have a comment. Uh, uh, IBM's Watson. Uh, is not available. Uh, it, we don't have a, a Geo Watson equivalent or a Tata consultancy or a Infosys Watson. Now, nobody stopped it. it. There's no regime saying that it's banned, like uh, in the case of nuclear. But the sheer magnitude of the technology, the thousands, hundreds of thousands of man-hours, uh, man-years that went into it, the investment that went into it, uh, then then testing it in medical industry, banking industry, all kinds of under, uh, industries, uh, perfecting it. Uh, this is a very large scale. In fact, it is so large scale, IBM is thinking of breaking up into two companies. The old IBM will become sort of low value company, maintaining software and stuff like that. Mostly Indian programmers doing it. And the new IBM, which will have a large market cap, will be Cloud and Watson together. That's it. So that's the future they see. Now, in the case of, uh, there's another one called GPT-3, uh, which started with a company that is, called, that is OpenAI. Their, their, tech, their name says that they are an open AI foundation and their purpose is to not deny AI and make it uh, open. Uh, and uh, Elon Musk is one of the persons who backed it. Uh, however, in the last two months, uh, the GPT-3 got licensed exclusively to Microsoft. Now, here is, here is an open source Developed in the pretext of uh, being open to everybody. But just two months ago, uh, GPT-3 got licensed to Microsoft. And I know this because my foundation is involved in an AI project. We are developing something we haven't announced, but we are developing an AI system, our own AI system, something to do with our civilization. And we need funding for it. And it's a very pioneering project. We were hoping to do it on GPT-3. And we hired somebody who's an expert on GPT-3. And he gave us this news that is no longer going to be very, very possible unless Microsoft gives you this permission, and Microsoft will, of course, make money out of it. So, whether you take the example of G P three G P D three in the hands of, uh, uh, for those who don't know, G P D three takes natural language processing, uh, understands the meaning of words. You can use it for translation. You can compose things naturally. You can understand natural speech, whether it's messages, email, uh, videos like this. They can figure out what you are saying, and and it has a huge impact on, 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 on using artificial intelligence. So, whether it is what which is being used in all kinds of vertical markets or whether it is GPT-3, the point is that what is technically supposed to be open source, in practice, it is not. It is not open source because to be using it, you need a very large scale. You need to, uh, and some of the technologies like GPT-3, even though the fundamental principles of AI are open source, one could say that the fundamental principles of nuclear physics are open source. But just because the principles of nuclear physics are open source doesn't mean that the engineering or Of implementing nuclear reactors was open source. So similarly, GPT-3 is not, I cannot go and uh, get the source code of GPT-3 from Elon Musk. He won't, it's not available. And I cannot get the whole uh, Watson either. So I think we have to, this business of uh, AI is open source is also one of those things that a lot of Indians have bought into. And a lot of the media that is trying to placate people and and not uh, uh, raise suspicions and not let people worry too much is going around saying everything is open source, don't worry. I mean, that's like saying nuclear physics is open source, and so there's no problem. So I think there is a problem. I think that what we will have will not be a denial of technology, but a technological imperialism. Technological imperialism means uh, IBM will say, of course, everybody can use. Uh, uh, you know, Watson, of course, but then you are the customer and they are the producer. They keep the data, they get, you are the user, they make revenue out of it. So of course, Microsoft will say GPT-3, we make it available worldwide, but they are the owners. So, you know, when you have a producer consumer relationship, it's not symmetric. It's not symmetric. When you have a, a supplier buyer relationship, seller buyer relationship. It's not symmetric. So it can be open source, but the people who are the producers, who who are the sellers uh, uh, are in a higher position than those who are the consumers and users. I mean, obviously, Britain didn't say that we won't sell you manufactured textiles. They want to sell you the manufactured textiles and make money off of it. So I think the the direction we are headed in when you look at uh, Watson as an example, and when you look at GP3 as an example, the h- direction we're headed in is about what I would call AI imperialism, which means it's available, it's, uh, it travels through national boundaries, but some people are more equal than others. Uh, some people have more ownership in it and uh, more power over it. Uh, then take a look at data. Uh, Facebook and, and Google control a lot of things in India. They control that they will make my post viral. And maybe Gopinath will be blocked or Gopinath's post will go viral. I'll go, I'll be shadow man. And this is happening. And we are going to, uh, we are talking to the the Google representative in India or the Facebook representative in India uh, to adjudicate and to argue that, hey, listen, I'm not a bad guy. I did not violate anything. He's He violated it. Now, it's like the British East India Company adjudicating between one Raja and another Raja. Rajas going to the East India Company for, uh, uh, for uh, you know, uh, to, to prove their case as if they are the rulers, as if they are the gods. So, in my book, I call them Google Devta, fish, uh, F- Facebook Devta, Twitter Devta. These are the Devtas that we have to go to to get our right, our freedom, uh, our equal status on the social media. So, while technologically there's no ban, anybody can start this, anybody can start their own. In practice, the amount of big data these people have is huge. The, the, the effect of so many hundreds of millions of people being members and being having friends and having invested there, building, uh, there's an investment in building your community on Facebook. Uh, I could technologically leave and join another another platform but what will happen to my whole community i won't leave if i'm alone in a new platform and i cannot convince my thousands of people uh, you know millions of followers and people to go along with me so this critical mass that these people have built is not very easy to replace and not very easy to migrate so for whether it is the kind of advantage vertical industry advantage uh, that uh, watson has whether it is gpt3 uh, advantage in natural language processing with a huge amount of experience and algorithms that have learned or whether it is the advantage that these big data companies in social media have, uh, these are different kinds of advantages, all brought brought about by the use of AI. And therefore, these, I'm giving you three examples where it's not a level playing field. There is no ban, but it is not, the effect is that we are not on power. I cannot go to a, an India-based uh, uh, you know, social media, get all the benefits Of Facebook and Google, get all the same number of followers, the same number of viewers, exactly like Facebook and Google give me, there is none available. And I cannot go to a place where the adjudication is under Indian courts, where I could, there would be somebody in India, I could go to and uh, protest and make a complaint and say, I'm not being fairly treated. They'll escalate it to a higher level, to a higher level, eventually it'll end up in the United States and you will get nowhere. So I based in the United States face this. And so people based in India face it even more. I've had numerous fights with Facebook, me personally, and with uh, YouTube. And and it's so amazing, for arbitrary reasons, they send you a notice saying that uh, this thing will not be allowed, that thing violates uh, community standards. Uh, Brian, who's a uh, 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 technical guy behind the scenes, organizing this, uh, uh, this conference call, this, this Zoom, he's the guy who uh, contacts these people. To argue with them, saying there's nothing wrong in this post, and the answer is, sir, we cannot do anything. The algorithm decided it. The algorithm decided it. So now there is this algorithm devata, also. And so just like in the in the traditional devatas, we you need to know agamas which give you all the rituals, how to please this devata, what you have to do. You know, now we have to learn the agamas for Google and agamas for Facebook in order to, uh, in, in which is called the rituals and the protocol and the etiquette. And what you should do, the search engine optimization, all those are agamas for appeasing these new devatas. So I think that you will see this is a very serious part of uh, what I call uh, battleground three, which is the battle for minds, hacking our minds, using big data and machine learning to give them the advantage to hack our minds. And it is not symmetrical. Then you take take facial recognition. Everybody can, of course, start the algorithm and start training it for facial recognition. But some people have the advantage of having done facial recognition on hundreds of millions of people of all kinds, all races, all ages. If I grow a beard, they can still recognize me. All of that. If I were to do a startup, I will not have that advantage of so much experience. And, and uh, the, the people are, are able to, people are uh, doing facial recognition of all your social media so they can build a, your your community who you are friendly with which politician you go out with what affair you are having who are your friends who are your enemies whom you haven't seen for many years whom you have seen only you've seen many times last week all of that is being figured out so the 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 ability of uh, the little guy of course technically anybody can do it but practically it is not possible so i i really believe that there is an asymmetry of power And in this asymmetry of power, the the big guys are generally foreign based, which takes me to the next point, which is, I see the problem India faces is that all of this imperialism, AI imperialism is apexed in United States and China. Uh, we've stopped the China, but we still got the United States. And so, uh, you know, I'm nothing, I mean, I'm not saying that there's something wrong with these guys, but India should have more agency, more more freedom. And under this make in India thing, we ought to be making our own platforms and our, uh, building our own big data and having our own, uh, you know, equivalent of Watson and GPT-3. So, that's how I take a look at it. It's, it's To me, the theory is that, yes, it's all level playing field, but in practice, it's not so.
0: Thanks, Rajiv. Uh, I'd like to, Professor uh, Kumar would like to respond. It is important for us to understand
4: uh, what is really difficult in India for India to do and what it is possible easily for India to do. And I'm going to take uh, two examples. Uh, you know, you cannot envision India entering the 20th century 100 years ago uh, or p- passing through the 20th century without a steel mill, right? now here we are in the 21st century in india without a single wafer fabrication a good wafer fabrication plant we have some stuff in chandigarh and so on but but essentially zero and uh, it is unbelievable <laughs> uh, that uh, we can be a modern country without a wafer fabrication plant these are the steel mills of the future okay that is really difficult for india to do because it takes a whole bunch of uh, uh, different technologies and so on. On the other hand, uh, Dr. Maratra, I, I would like to say that easier than that, much easier than that is what we understand as machine learning, right? Uh, people, facial recognition and so on, uh, any dedicated set of uh, a few people can put together a fantastic uh, uh, database and all kinds of things they can do. That's not a problem. So on that kind of algorithmic software stuff, that is, uh, India can do it. If we don't do it, it's only because we somehow for economic or organizational or whatever purposes, we're not doing it, it is possible. It, it is definitely within the realm of possible. It's definitely rel- within the realm of possible for a bunch of professors from IISc or IIT or a bunch of people in the Bangalore ecosystem to develop a Watson,
2: it's not difficult. So there are obviously, you know, great asymmetries uh, that are created by technology throughout human civilization, right? AI is just the latest example. But if you look at who colonized the world first, are the people who figured out how to go across the oceans, right? So technologies have always been, uh, you know, creators of asymmetry in the world. And uh, colonization is one example of of that, right? And now the digital colonization is a great example. Uh, uh, example of of what is going on, I'll give a couple of examples of how it is happening, and why this facade of open source has been thrown upon us, and we have started to believe it. Right. So, uh, you know, there was a debate about data centers by all these companies in India, right? So today, Google, Microsoft, uh, Amazon, obviously, if they don't bring data centers into India. Today, a lot of these applications in India, let's say Ola and and even Flipkart for a long time, ran out of Amazon and other data centers, which are sitting outside India, right? Now the debate came that, hey, these data centers have to come to India because Indian data cannot go out. And the kind of data centers we are seeing in India are actually third generation data centers. So the kind of technology that are being used in India to create data centers out of reluctance is a third generation data center, which is like three generations behind, if you will, right? If you look at GPU technology, CPU technology, Indian data centers by the same companies are way behind than what they have in even Singapore, right? Singapore data centers are far ahead than Indian data centers in Mumbai, Delhi, wherever they are, right? By these companies. So that's one example. And I think that leads to a question of whoever controls the entire value chain, is going to win this right so if somebody controls the vlsi and manufacturing of vlsi and the design and manufacturing that you know india has lost to intel and amds of the world then you know the the cloud and hardware uh, you know the, the pc revolution we have not produced a dell-like company to produce pc we have not produced a microsoft-like software company to conquer that market so hardware vlsi hardware software now data and you know again the FANG companies are, are far ahead and all that, and now the AI market, right? So it's an entire value chain. We cannot see one without the other. And if you look at the entire value chain, anywhere somebody can cut us off, right? So if they, they decide to close the data centers or like uh, like you said, you know, China decides to not sell certain chips to India from Taiwan, then you know we are we are vulnerable to that. So I think like we have tried to achieve uh, sovereignty in food we should also try to achieve sovereignty, end-to-end sovereignty in in uh, this also, right, in technology. The other point I wanted to make was this, this facade of uh, open source, right? So I wonder, you know, I was at Google and I work with the TensorFlow team and they have open source tensor after I left and many things happened, they have open source tensor. I thought it was a great gesture on part of Google. But I want to, you know, uh, debate this idea that all this TensorFlow is not useful without all the data that Googles of the world have. So I can have TensorFlow as a technology. I can open, you know, use the free version of it and all that. But I don't have the kind of data they have. And the only reason why a company would open source something is not because they want to open source something, but because they know that you cannot do anything with that you cannot become a competitor to them. So I'll give you one more example. Twitter, you know, back in the day, Twitter had opened up its data, right? So Twitter said anybody can download a lot of Twitter data and do analytics on it. And as soon as, uh, you know, that uh, they realized that there's a lot of value to their data, they closed it, right? So while every company wants to, you know, be very philanthropic, open source and all that, as soon as they realize the value of their technology, they try to become a lot more closed about it. So, and this is yet to be seen in this world also. But I think the the spirit with which the internet started, for example, and the spirit with which Google was started uh, is lost somewhere. And now we are living in a different kind of uh, internet and Google and all these uh, technology companies with the spirit with which Facebook started. And now what it is, has evolved in a very negative direction. And I completely agree with uh, Rajiv, sir, that, uh, you know, that, that, churning and manthan has to happen uh, and, and, you know, what, how it will affect India is is a very important question that all of us have to think about.
0: Thank you, Shailesh. Uh, I think Raji wants to respond to some of the issues raised so far.
1: Thank you very much. So, you know, I think this is a phenomenal discussion. This is, uh, uh, this is really amazing. It's going well beyond what I wanted. It's really great. Now, the good news is uh, Shailesh is so Candid as a corporate guy. So candid about the challenges facing the corporate world. I mean, I was concerned he may be defensive, but I'm so happy that he's looking at it from all sides of, you know, he's looking at the corporate side, he's looking at it as an Indian, he's looking at it, you know, what the limitations are. Because even in my book, I will confess, Chalish, I've criticized that why aren't the people like Jio doing more? But I think you're valid in saying that the challenges are huge. It'll take time. I mean, we have to, uh, so I'm, I'm also learning. I'm very glad you're, you're, uh, uh, you're updating my own knowledge also. Uh, because I was very critical that why did they let Google and Facebook in? Those guys are like the East India company. And why is the Raja letting those guys in? Okay, Uh, you should be actually creating a Google of our own. But the point you're making is that this is not so easy. I mean, you have semiconductors and then you have uh, Dell to put it all together. We don't have any of that. Then you have Microsoft to write operating system. Now you have AI, then you have big data. I mean, there's so many levels we don't have. Now, I disagree with uh, Professor Kumar because I think he brings an academic uh, view, which is not a practical industry view. There is a difference between what is theoretically possible and what's practical. Uh, You know, it's theoretically possible, just like he says, it's also possible that you can get a few smart people and write the next uh, operating system for Microsoft and you don't. there's nothing special about iOS and there's nothing special about Android there's nothing special about Windows we can also do it but the point is we haven't done it and it's not that easy I'm an operating system guy my first job in computer science in the early 70s was in the mainframe industry writing operating systems compilers and those kind of things database software when these things were just starting out and, and so I understand that uh, you know I, in those days I could get a team of 50 people and we could write our own OS but it is not so easy to make an OS make it Scalable, have an install base, have have so many apps on it. I mean, when you look at it as an as an industry, as a corporate system, uh, to achieve what these guys have achieved, the American companies is not trivial. It is it is it's a very big deal, and the big data and the facial recognition is one thing to say that I'll get five guys in my lab and we'll write a facial, re- but that's not going to cut it. You will get 0.1 percent market share. It, that's really what it is. so the 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 big things, I would even add quantum computing to that. I would say that uh, we haven't mentioned that, but I would say like semiconductors, uh, the concern the U.S. Department of Defense has, and I've talked to some people there, one of the uh, one of the big troubles that the U.S. thinks they are in is that China has stolen a lot of secrets. China is getting ahead in quantum computing. And uh, if they were to build a successful, have a breakthrough in quantum computing, they've had a few milestones. But if they need one or two more, they will be able to hack all the networks. They'll be able to, all the encryption will be gone, 64-bit or higher will be all gone. Uh, uh, you know, password will be obsolete. And like that, you'll be Able to, with one click, uh, like uh, Vidya Sagarji said point and click, by just point and click, you'll be able to break through any code. And so the defense networks will be uh, vulnerable. The only way to resist a quantum computing onslaught is to have your own quantum computing. So, the race for quantum computing is a race for military supremacy. It has literally come down to that. The United States understands that. So, don't think this trade war is because of some quirk that uh, between President Xi and Trump and all that. This is all CIA, Department of Defense, Pentagon, serious thinking people are coming to the conclusion that we are in trouble as the United States. And, and India now understands it. Uh, they just uh, TIFR just hired uh, a person I know from from Cambridge, uh, whose uh, doctorate was in quantum computing, uh, to come and start some quantum computing work in India. So the the layers and layers of technology, uh, each of them requiring tens of billions of dollars in investment and many many years of uh, time. Uh, the layers are required to build a whole ecosystem to bring India on par with. China and USA is a huge. And you know, uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I really want the GOP type people, the government type people to scale this on a big way. But I also understand what Shalesh is saying. This is not easy. Let's not trivialize that uh, a few of us will be able to, uh, to manage this. One other thing I want to mention on the issue of sovereignty, uh, which I think uh, Shalesh mentioned, uh, data sovereignty it was vidya sagar or Sa- uh, uh, shalesh that we need we need sovereignty of our technology i would like something the scale of isro or baba atomic research mm-hmm. to be put together for this field something of that size something where it is you know the scale is huge the funding is huge and that works with industry that works with academics we have a lot of little pockets because we think i can get Five, 10 guys and I can put it all together. That's not so. Uh, the, the American might is the military industrial academic complex. It is not just uh, Eisenhower called it the military industrial complex, but now academic has joined in. Uh, when I was a grad student in 1971, uh, my professors, in computer science, my professors all had government grants. We, I had to get uh, security clearance with the Pentagon to go with my professor, and I felt so proud and so you know fascinated that a young student like me is doing stuff that uh, are funded by the Department of Defense. Now in India, you don't have that. You don't have large scale. I'm not talking about little bit here and there. I'm talking about large scale projects funded by the department of defense and military with ha- which have collaborations with industry which have collaborations with academia you don't have that academia is separate silo uh, industry is separate silo you don't even have academic industry alliances on the same scale as in the united states uh, and 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 uh, 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 you know defense uh, industry are also separate so there are three separate silos in india whereas in the in china also china has taken the american model and China has the military industrial academic complex. Uh, you know, the Jack Ma is having pro- problem with the uh, Chinese government. They are suing him for antitrust and all that. It's all to get him back online. Because the People's Liberation Army has a huge stake in, the, in Jack Ma's uh, thinking and his funding and control. And every time he goes a bit off, they want to pull him back. And the, so, China has taken this American model that the government funds a lot of things on a very big scale and industry is part of it. And uh, which is, you know, the capitalist free market system, but they're part of all this. Uh, and, and so is the academic world. In the United States, you know, the, all this Grumman and, uh, you know, all these Northrop and uh, Boeing and uh, McDonnell Douglas and all these huge defense contractors, that's the backbone of the U.S. defense R&D. And that also is a kind of segue into the private sector. They get a lot of technology from defense contracts, and then they privatize it and make money out of it ahead of other countries. So, this, I think, is a topic uh, to discuss the the lack of industrial, military, academic complex in India.
0: Thank you, Rajiv. Professor Kumar.
1: So, first, actually, I should say that I
4: completely agree with uh, Dr. Malhotra. Uh, uh, at all levels, but the what I'm trying to do is uh, introduce a little bit of nuance. For example, there was uh, in 2002, uh, there was a bunch of people at ISC who developed this simputer. This was way ahead of its time. It was uh, right there with Palm, ahead of Palm, and. Uh, uh, but it didn't take off, okay? So we developed the operating system for this handheld device, et cetera, but it didn't take off. The question is why, what are the challenges that prevented that from becoming a dominating product? Those challenges are very different from, for example, the challenges of starting a fabrication plant in India, where you need $5 billion a pop, okay? And and, and there are other challenges. For example, uh, 5G in India, uh, until recently, in, I mean, uh, uh, it, it turns out that there is uh, this organization called 3GPP, which is developing the standards uh, for the 5G technology. Okay, And at this place, all countries have a, have a if they just uh, insist, they have a place at the table and they can veto things. You have a veto power. Until recently, India played no role in that organization. And through the efforts of a bunch of people, mainly from academia, okay. Uh, We, now India has a standards organization, okay? TSDSI, Telecom Standard Development Society of India. There also we've had challenges. It turns out that the Indian, uh, when they set up this uh, society, standard society, invited all companies which are registered in India to be members. And of course, you have a lot of foreign companies which have set up Indian uh, things. Uh, It has been very difficult to get that going. So the challenges of how you can get 5g technology done in india are very different again from uh, say how uh, you can develop a jet engine so so we have different challenges at different levels and if i uh, uh, and and i think all of them are difficult but if i had to kind of think about what scares me more is when will india ever get a semiconductor wave fabrication plant the only hope there is one small uh, silver lining uh, there are some things even in semiconductors which are like leapfrog technologies. Maybe we should just go to uh, set up a small fab in gallium nitride or something like that, lighting technologies, but the capital cost is uh, not that much. And in fact, this uh, was mentioned to me by a professor at uh, ISC, Professor of So uh, maybe with a smaller capital, we can get a semiconductor thing started in India ahead of its time. So uh, I, I guess the point I'm saying is, there are some things that uh, technologically we can do, but somehow the rest of the Indian ecosystem is not allowing that.
0: There are other things which are technologically also very difficult. So can I request Professor vidyasagar uh, to respond to some of the comments?
3: So I think we need to make a distinction between what I'll call self-sufficiency so that someone cannot put you out of business through technology denial regime, I feel reasonably comfortable on that. But whether we will actually achieve a position of technological leadership, so that in addition to being self sufficient, we also become world leaders, that much more iffy. I think that Kumar's idea of a gallium arsenide foundry, as opposed to silicon foundry is a very good one. Whether there's a master plan, in India, as there is in, say, a country like China, no, there isn't. And uh, quite frankly, given the state of the Indian politicians, there is never going to be. I think we should uh, stop counting on having wise politicians and wise bureaucrats who put the interests of the country ahead of their own self-interest. It's not going to happen.
0: The next question is, uh, how is AI shifting power? between individuals individuals and large organizations, whether private or government. In the United States, the big five, for example, Google, Amazon, and uh, Microsoft, et cetera, they collect large amounts of behavioral data. And the US state is mostly in partnership with these private players. In China, the state is moving from a totalitarian model to an AI-based surveillance model. So the question I'd like to pose is, if you notice in the 90s, we had the World Trade Organization, GATT, with respect to goods and IPR. IPR rules have been mostly code centric, not data centric, while well, now data has become very important. So, will it be the case that the global AI powers will they change international laws, for example, with respect to data, for their own advantage? And what is happening in India, for example? For example, we don't have any platforms at the, uh, let's say at the private level typically, except at the government level. For example, we have something called uh, India Stack, GST, Jam that is done, Aadhaar and Mobile. Now there's also a new one called Open Credit Enablement Network, okay? OCEN. Okay? So these are the kind of uh, platforms that are beginning to become available, but these are all the government level. So in terms of AI, all these platforms, can they be, let's say, uh, Are they usable? What is the long-term prognosis? So essentially I'm asking the questions about shifting of power between individuals and large organizations and uh, issues about, for example, global powers, will they change these international laws to their advantage? And what is happening with respect to India with respect to platforms? So can I request uh, Silesh to first uh, make his remarks? Then we'll request uh, Professor uh, Vidyasagar and, uh, and uh, Kumar to, and then conclude with uh, Rajiv's observations.
2: Yeah, sure. I think this is a great question. And um, so the, you know, uh, I think if I look at the historical perspective, right, since the independence till, let's say, uh, 10, 10 years ago, 5 years ago, Uh, I think we have had a very slow start. We have not had strategic thinking about how to take the country forward. We have not had a holistic thinking around technology. We were still dealing with, hey, you know, we are coming out of a lower middle class, poor country mindset and put a, uh, you know, uh, you know, poverty line. And we were having those discussions while, you know, the rest of the world was having discussions about AI. We were having discussions about uh, food security and all that, right? So obviously we are behind. Uh, it looks very pessimistic but uh, i am very hopeful with with uh, with the same technologies the internet and you know all that now the indian uh, youth is much more aware uh, we are studying from the best universities of the world and we are we are you know absorbing all that great knowledge so now that you know that one level of equilibrium has come democratisation of education has happened uh, at least and now it is up to us to adopt that revolution and do something beyond it right but if you think about, uh, you know, shifting of power, again, you know, I keep talking about whenever this question arises, right, will AI destroy humanity? Will AI create disequilibrium? Dis- will AI do this? Will AI take away jobs? I think, you know, at a very philosophy level, human civilization has not moved ahead on the inner self, and it has moved very fast on the outer self. And that is the true imbalance that we have to worry about.
0: Uh, basically, I, would, I, want, I was asking one specific question about uh, yes. the lack of Indian platforms, yes. except at the government level. Okay. At the government level, we have something like India Stack, GST, yes. JAM, and o- OSIN, etc. So, yes. in terms yes. of AI, what is, the, what is likely to happen in these areas? Uh, and especially uh, so, so. the shifting of power between individuals and large organizations.
2: Yes, and I think as long as we remain tactical thinkers, we will never become platform thinkers. And this is what is one big lesson we have to learn here, which is if we don't think platform. And these platforms are great. I think you know the the payment, digital payment, and the digital uh, uh, you know Aadhaar and all that. These are amazing, very very strategic. And the next platform, the National Education Policy. These are very very far reaching initiatives by the government. Uh, And it is unfortunate that industries did not think about these platforms, right? It took a government or some other body or a neutral agency to think about these platforms. Uh, And, and, you know, that is what I think is lacking, which is uh, we need such platforms because they are the foundations to do the next layer and the next layer and the next layer, right? And I think uh, the more such platforms we can create, the the more we can digitize uh, the, the Indian economy, the Indian society, the Indian culture. Uh, and bring those benefits. But platformization thinking has always been lacking because that is a strategic thinking that takes time, research, money. And, and uh, like uh, uh, Dr. Manojra was saying, uh, you know, the, the, it takes an ecosystem to build such things, right? We cannot do it as a startup. It takes a huge amount of resources and people and a lot of political will or an industrial will or a technological will or an academic will to come together to build such platforms. And, and I think that is the part that uh, we are lacking. And we need to start thinking that, you know, are we going to remain a billion India or one India, which is kind of focusing on building such platforms together. One of my key uh, learnings is that uh, I think India will definitely benefit from AI, but uh, AI will benefit a lot from India. And if you think about this dictum, AI will benefit a lot from India. Uh, I think, you know, let me give some examples, right? So I keep thinking about the AI stack for India, right? You ask the stack question, the platform question. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, India has one of the largest diversity of data in any field, whether it is speech, whether it is language, whether it is genomics, uh, whether it is consumer behavior. I think we are the goldmine of data. And if we are ourselves not able to take advantage of it, then we have failed so first is we have to recognize that uh, as a playing field for ai right whether it's a good thing or a bad thing uh, india india is one of the richest data uh, generators if you will possible right if you go to france there is one language if you go to germany there is one language if you go to us there is only one language in india we have 22 official languages and so many more dialects and other things behind it right Can we do GPT-3 in Indian languages? We have only done it in English after so much of hard work and data and compute. Can we do such things in Indian languages? Can we build translation systems across Indian languages which are needed? Can we build speech to text understanding systems so that our drivers can speak in the local language and talk to their devices in a noisy environment sitting in an Ola cab, right? So what I'm Trying to do is, uh, you know, whenever I talk to the the next generation data scientists, I turn their attention to the Indian opportunity in AI, right? And that's a huge opportunity, right? We don't always have to go and join a McKinsey or a, sorry, uh, you know, like a like a stock trading company and say AI for stock market, right? That's not always the the best use case today. I think uh, the the use cases of AI in the Indian context are far more far richer, far more complex. And we have to recognize that. And the next generation of India has to recognize that. And when we learn data science, I think one of the things we are trying to do is we are trying to do it in a way which is problem-centric first, right? Design thinking first. Go figure out the problems of India, right? There are potholes, there are farmers committing suicide, there is electricity problem, water problem, pollution problem in Delhi. Go figure out those problems. You don't have to go outside India to find what you need to do so i think the first thing is we need to kind of educate ourselves about the opportunity of ai in the indian context and then think about what an indian ai stack should look like it is very important to uh, to realize that you know Eng- whenever we say natural language processing everybody believes that it is english language processing nobody thinks it's a sanskrit language processing or a punjabi language processing right why is that it's not even in our minds. We never even think about it. We say NLP means "chalo English me kuch right? And this this idea has to change. That India has a lot more opportunity. What you have done in one language, you can do it twenty times more in the Indian context. But where is the data? Where are the labels? Where is the parallel corpus? And now we have to work on those because Google has not become Google because suddenly one day it became Google, right? It worked on it. Similarly, we have to work on it and organize ourselves around these ideas and say, look, we are rich in problem statements. We don't have to go out of the country to find problem statements. Let us become passionate about our own problem statements. And you know, a few weeks ago or a few days ago, Google uh, launched you know, this language uh, technologies for te- seven, eight Indian languages, right? It took a Google to actually launch Indian language systems and you know, we failed again in, in some sense, right? India has not done that.
1: Rajivji do wanted to say something. I, I'm really resonating with what Chalesh says. Uh, and, and my book is a critique of the way things are, not how they ought to be, and I agree with him on how they ought to be. Uh, the bottom up is what he's saying, and I agree with it. Uh, We need people to go to the village level, to the district level, to the panchayat level and really understand India. And the problems are not uniform all over India. It's like a microcosm of the whole world. So we need our young people to go and discover this, hang out with NGOs, hang out with all sorts of, you know, local communities, jatis, uh, you know, uh, profession specific community, understand their problems and come up with solutions. Whereas too much has been going on based on top down. Uh, foreign AI imported, big corporate thinking, uh, all the big corporate, all the reports which the government of India is using, they're getting all these McKinsey people, Google people to tell them what the strategy should be. So that is what I'm calling recolonization of India because we are allowing other countries to define what we should do, how we should do it, uh, even give us our funding. Majority of the funding for AI startups is foreign uh, venture capitalist people. Even China got a lot, lot more investment in India prior to All this blockage than the Indian companies did. Some of the Chinese companies are investing through Singapore and European uh, holding companies and so on. So uh, the the, the India, the AI is not, uh, you know, neither the the, the topics to discuss, the problems to solve are not uh, developed bottom up. And uh, the institutional mechanisms are not there. Uh, We are basically supplying labor. That's all we are doing. And, And the whole policy, if you look at the policy today, uh, official policy of the government, official policy of uh, many Indian institutions, NASCOM, uh, which is uh, representing the software people, has basically conceded that we will just be laborers below the glass ceiling and we're just going to skill so that this guy will buy it. Uh, Kotak, uh, uh, Uday Kotak, I quote him in my book, in this uh, book that we are discussing, uh, says that my dream is that uh, just like uh, urban India, send, uh, you know, b- boys are hired in Microsoft and he uh, gives these names. Uh, so also, my dream is that rural India will also be working for those guys. And I quote him there. I say, what a lousy dream. Uh, that is not my dream of India. I mean, my, my dream is completely opposite. So, I'm very glad that Shailesh, while being a corporate guy, has think- has- is able to think uh, beyond this top down limitation. Uh, as a true bharati i am so happy uh, uh, now one point i want to comment on that charle said it is not ai or technology that is good or bad but human beings so when we evaluate the impact of ai on society we are impact we are evaluating what what are human beings likely to do with it we are evaluating the human beings only so there is a difference between what is and what ought to be Terrorism as an application of various things happening in technology and globalization, not how it ought to be, but that's how it is. So when you take a pragmatic view, not an idealistic view of AI, uh, then you have to look at how human beings are using it and how they're likely to use it. And that's how I've written this book as a pragmatic uh, uh, forecast and concern on the way things are turning out in AI and not uh, not how, I, I would say, from a Dharma point of view, how they ought to be. Uh, I'm also writing a sequel on how they ought to be, and my my own proposal on how to turn it from what is to what ought to be. So that's a that to me is are two separate issues. Uh,
0: I think uh, Professor Kumar wants to say something. Uh, in India,
4: uh, I think there is generally not broad awareness of many of the issues that we're talking about. Yes. For example, I'll give you some specific examples. Uh, for example, in 1987, uh, the CDOT dot in India. Uh, developed a rural telephone exchange which unleashed a rural telecom revolution in India. At that time, CDOT was at the same level as Huawei. They were hot on the heels of 5ESS, the same telephone exchange that uh, uh, Bell Labs was using. Nevertheless, that company folded. What combination of economic forces, political uh, interactions, et cetera, is uh, dirty dark secrets that are not discussed, okay? People do not know. I think we need educating the public. I'll give you another example. We need, we are discussing here, for example, in the 5G standards that are being set up uh, for the rural standards, they wanted to define standards that would be applicable to rural Europe or something, where you have very high speed trains moving with uh, uh, propagation distances and so on, which may not be applicable to the Indian standards. There was a big battle by, led by people in India, IIT, Madras, and so on, uh, where uh, we, Put rural Indian standards into the standards. So we buy equipment that's more suitable for us. Same thing. We have actually 4G technology that has been developed in India, but they cannot have tested it out in a single cell. And there's a chicken and egg situation. Unless you test it in a single cell, nobody will buy it, and nobody will buy it unless <laughs> So, how do you break that? And the government could easily have facilitated that. For example, we are setting up a Bharat net in India where we're connecting fiber to all the Indian villages. Now, we are connecting Wi-Fi hotspots to the ends of those fibers. It could have been very easy to try out a few of our 4G solutions. We didn't do that. And in fact, Wi-Fi has only a range, a limited range, 30 meters, 50 meters, whereas a 4G station would have covered the entire, from the Grand entire the whole village. We didn't do that. Why? What are the issues there? The other issue, what? where are our IIT graduates going? I, I, I did a review of one of the, major IITs a few years ago, and the statistics sometimes are shocking. How many of the IIT students aspire to becoming a clerk in a bank, in a foreign bank is just uh, depressing. These are all technological stories that have to be told to India. We will not get policy in India unless there is broad awareness. If you believe in a democracy, and that's where we are going now, uh, there is not a central leadership which is going to take policy decisions without broad awareness. So I would like to suggest that you know, every newspaper should have a technology column, daily, weekly, whatever, and they should discuss these very substantial examples, which are secrets, which are unknown to everybody in India, to talk what are the cutting-edge issues in 5G, what is the policy for getting, doing a leapfrog in semiconductor technology, et cetera, data centers, et cetera. So I think this is something very badly needed and unless we educate our people about it, India is not going to get its act together. And it's very high time we got its act uh, act together because even when we have been successful in the technology, we have given it up like uh, CDOT, for example. So uh, I don't know how to facilitate that, but probably perhaps uh, Dr. Malhotra through his Facebook or whatever can somehow unleash some magic here.
0: We had a a very long discussion, but very interesting one. And uh, I think probably it's time to close. So I'd like to request uh, Rajivji to say the last few words and then we'll close.
1: I want to thank everyone for uh, making this a wonderful experience. I'm sure the viewers will love it. Uh, This is a very distinguished panel. Each one had their own views uh, and Gopinath managed it brilliantly. Uh, I I want to say that uh, throughout the year 2021, uh, we plan on having many such events, virtual events, panel discussions. We want to have conferences, seminars. Uh, we're looking for partners, uh, uh, you know, uh, corporate partners, academic partners, uh, partners of various kinds. And we want to open the discourse. Now, now uh, uh, when I wrote this book, and I've been researching this for four or five years now, uh, I thought that this will capture the imagination of social scientists. And I must tell you, I'm disappointed. It's not that I'm biased because I'm a technocrat myself and I'm biased, but I will tell you that the technocrats have taken this up as a serious matter where they think it's very serious stuff. They Firstly, they understand it and they feel that these are issues that ought to be discussed publicly. Uh, some, they, these are issues they've been, they've been talking about privately, but they need to come out more publicly. Uh, I, I feel that the policymakers are a little behind, but the most disappointing people are social scientists, uh, psychologists, uh, people who claim to have built careers in, uh, in social psychology. I went to Delhi University, I went to various universities, JNU, I went to places like that and I brought in social scientists. I thought that okay, the old ones are very uh, stuck in their ways and they're threatened by this. I showed them how the social sciences method of collecting data is obsolete. Anthropology is obsolete because now you can, you can capture this data so much more easily, quickly and you can process it in much better ways, that all these social sciences and all that are obsolete market research is already being taken over by AI. So they didn't get it. And then I thought, maybe I'll go to younger people. I'll go to the younger professors and they didn't get it. I thought i will go to the postdoc people. So somehow the social sciences people in India are just not getting this. And that's one of the things I want to do with this book is to break open to that. I feel that there are people in the United States in uh, social sciences who are getting it. In economics, uh, uh, some two or three extremely well-known publicly known economists in India, big figures. I sent them a little bit, uh, you know, about a year ago, what I was writing. They didn't understand. And they they said things like, uh, I'm an economist. Why should I be worrying about AI? So I said, that's as ridiculous as somebody uh, during the industrial revolution saying, you know, uh, why should an economist worry about industrial evolution? I mean, come on, it changed the whole world economy. And so, AI is having such a huge impact. And you as an economist, you're telling me. And I'm talking about people who are in very senior positions, official positions, as economists, not bothered. As gurus not bothered about the social discussions that ought to happen. I'm talking about public intellectuals who are in all these, you know, forums and mantans. And they're having all these lit fests. Not a single panel on artificial intelligence. And I've been proposing it for a year. It's not like I haven't, I've been, I've been going to whether it's the Jaipuritory Festival, whether it is this one, that one, all kind of things. uh, Left wing, right wing, they just don't know. They just don't think it's important. So part of the help I will need from you guys who are knowledgeable on this panel, is I want to take it further. I want your help. I want to come back to you. And propose, we are going to, as Infinity Foundation, we are going to uh, develop many such things. And we want you involved uh, as uh, as academic directors, as thought leaders, uh, as uh, panel leaders, uh, because throughout 2021, uh, this is what I want to be doing. So I want to close by thanking all of you and by also saying that the mobilization of awareness building has just started. Uh, India is lagging behind, not only in AI technology, but also in public awareness about these things. So with your help, uh, let's move forward. And thank you very much, all of you.
0: Thank you very much, all of you. Again, again, a fantastic uh, discussion. I think it has gone on for much longer than expected. But I'm uh, deeply thankful that all of you stayed back so that we could conclude this uh, discussions. And I think as uh, Rajiji has mentioned, uh, we probably can, in case it is of interest, we can uh, revisit other questions or more deeper questions, or if it is uh, needed, we can certainly do it again. I think probably we will take the call
1: by discussions. Yes. Okay. okay. Thank you, Anybody everybody. Else wants to Thank,
0: you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Namaste.
1: Namaste.